Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each episode, we speak with authors and national faith leaders and advocates and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. This time we are joined by Dr. Terrence Lester, PhD, somebody, hello. <laughs> That's on the, more, on the recent side. And so we're still celebrating, we're in celebration mode. He is the author of a few books, including his most recent, All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. Uh, if you have been listening to our episodes recently, you, you might see a theme. <laughs> We are, we are definitely in the midst of um, a major series this whole last year, really asking the question of, um, of how do we engage this, this critical time and space that we're in right now that is so super divided and how do we leverage the power of history to do it, right? So um, Terrence, I've invited to speak with us today because his book, All God's Children, offers really practical advice for the next generations of faith communities that understand that in order to move forward, we have to look back, right? So um, he has, he has. I mean, it's almost like he's really done the work in his book of saying, okay, do this and then now do this and then now do that. And so I wanted to make sure everybody who listens to Freedom Road has the roadmap, okay? So this is your roadmap. So we'd love to hear your thoughts, thread or insta us at me, at Lisa S. Harper, or reach out to Freedom Road directly on thread or insta at freedomroad.us um, or you can catch us on substack at freedom road and so you know we're just we're everywhere <laughs> so there you go please keep sharing the podcast though i mean our audience is growing um people are talking about it. i'm actually really truly surprised whenever i go out and speak somebody's like oh i was listening to your podcast today i'm like oh my gosh that's so cool people are listening <laughs> so keep sharing it with your friends and your networks and let us know what you think so Terrence, let's dive in, okay? We we usually start with folks' faith stories. So can you share with us, like, how did you come to faith? And and like, where where was your faith location um, and your development that got you to where you are now? Yeah. It's, well, firstly, thank you for having me, uh, Lisa. I have a huge uh, honor and respect for your work and although I've never met you in person, I feel like you're my auntie. <laughs> so <laughs> ditto, I tell my, my I, I tell my wife and my kids that's Auntie Lisa, right? Aww. And um, I'm just really appreciative for you. But as you talk about uh, narrative gaps, uh, one of the things that you do really well, even in your recent book, Fortune, is talk about your uh, your historical shaping and relationship to your family. And uh, that takes me back to my grandmother, uh, Jessica mm -hmm. Lester, who was a part of the historic Wheat Street Baptist Church. I can remember as early as age eight, sitting in the, the Baptist pews, uh, listening to uh, the ministers deliver a liturgy that was both spiritual and justice oriented, right? Wow. Um, I remember you know, listening to choirs in their robust singing, uh, mm. bringing this message of hope, but also 
talking about issues of our of our day uh, that was plaguing the black community. And mm-hmm. I remember watching my grandmother uh, being a community leader, a uh, sort of a activist in her own right, uh, but a lover of people. Mm-hmm. And just reflecting on, you know, that kind of imprint on my life mm-hmm. uh, as early as age eight, I can tell that uh, that was the start of my uh, spiritual development in mm. terms of understanding that there is some type of divine uh, uh, being, right, greater right. than uh, all of my social location, my context, etc. Mm. And then, you know, kind of fast forwarding, um, you know, as a teenager, as early as 16 and a half years old, I remember running away from home. Oh, which, wow. I think all of yeah. us have that. Wait, let me tell you. I probably ran. I think I ran away from home about two or three times. Yeah. As a kid. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't yeah. really warranted. It was like my mom wouldn't listen to me, or maybe she was going to ground me for something bad that I did. And I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and I ran around the block and I stayed with a friend. I literally went to a friend's mm-hmm. house. Oh my gosh. Stupid. Yeah. Anyway, how, so, but you ran away from, was it for real? Like, did you really run? Yeah. Away? Ooh, well, it, it was it was it was one of those moments where, like, if you can imagine, like, uh, the the social context that I was kind of being brought up in was mixed with, you know, violence and abuse and all of those sorts of things. And so mm-hmm. I felt safer mm-hmm. uh, being away. And so mm-hmm. I found myself, you know, sleeping in parks and from friend's house to friend's house. Uh, experiencing ho- homelessness, which is uh, in total mm. contrast to my, you know, kind of my experience in my my faith upbringing with my grandmother. And so yeah. I really wrestled for a lot of years until I had an encounter when I was about 20 years old. Um, I found myself in a jail cell uh, as a young black man. And um, this guy comes over to me and he asked mm. me a question that changed the the trajectory of my life. He says, "What on earth are you doing here?" And it wow. wasn't, uh, you know, the kind of talking to me, trying to see what 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 did you do to get in here. He was right. basically framing this in a way where it was like, "Why are you wasting your life?" Right. And wow. uh, that caused, yeah, that caused me to reflect on uh, my time with my grandmother, uh, what I had been exposed to at an early age. And then he shares uh, the gospel with me, right? Uh, the good news. In, in jail? Cell. This is this is a prisoner? In, yeah, in that cell. Yeah. I gave my life uh, wow. uh, to the Lord uh, in that moment. I got out. The charges were dropped. I remember making a, um, a commitment to God. Uh, I said, if you give me another opportunity when I uh, leave college and go back home, I'm never mm-hmm. looking back. And I wow. uh, started along that journey and discovering who I was, get, getting involved in church, getting a lot of mentors who were like twice my age mm-hmm. and um, really being, uh, you know, kind of discipled in a way where uh, it was more of just spending time asking questions from older, mm-hmm. uh, the older generation and really mm-hmm. starting to understand who I was what my history was and mm-hmm. all of those things. And so that's kind of like how I came to faith in terms of, you know, really having some spiritual development. So I credit mm-hmm. my, my grandmother as well as 
uh, you know, unfortunate circumstance. What did you learn about who you were and what your history was in that journey? Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard because, you know, in the black family, sometimes mm -hmm. I know in my experience, you know, history really isn't shared in a way that, you know, where it's like you get a chance to understand your family tree or why right. someone made this decision or, you know, how do we end up here? Or mm -hmm. even like some of your ancestral things, like who was my grandmother's mother? You know, what did they do? Right. You know, right. some of those things that are like, you have to really dig for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I remember starting to have race conversations before I knew my family's mm -hmm. history as early as age nine and 10. Oh I yeah, remember the first absolutely. Time. I remember that. Yeah I, yeah. yeah. I remember the first time hearing about, you know, history in a way that was like really jarring. And it mm -hmm. came in the form of like the talk that most young black children get when they are like eight and nine years old. Mm -hmm. um, and my grandfather started to talk to me about like real issues, like, you know, his experiences, how he grew up, um, how his grandparents was, were given the opportunity to read, uh, mm -hmm. you know, about Emmett Till and some of these real things. And it was like drinking from a ward, a fire hydrant, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm encountering these things and like it started to, I guess, cause me to question who I was in relationship to my family, but who I am in relationship to uh, the culture that I'm emerging from. And so like that started, mm -hmm. that started a lot of the questioning. Yeah. Wow. So when your family first sat you down and started to share with you this, the history, the Emmett Till, the sense of, you know, this is what you have to be careful of as a black, young black boy. Um, yeah. Did you, did you have a sense of how all of those things had ever impacted your own family and then within your own family story, or was it just passed down to you as like lessons, things to know, as opposed to, well, when your great aunt Berta did this or that, this is what happened. You know, was it, was it even put in context? Yeah. I mean, it, it was put in context, like. I remember my grandfather who is still alive, my grandmother who is 91, she's still alive. Mm -hmm. And my other grandmother is still alive, she's uh, 86. But I remember my grandfather, let's say Carlton York, right? Mm -hmm. How he would talk to me about his like very real experiences. One time he was, um, you know, brutally beaten by the KKK, right? When he wow. was a teenager. And he told me that he had to spend, you know, almost a month in the hospital uh, because they almost claimed his life. Um, my 91 year old grandmother, who I'm still like unpacking things from, she she was born in 1932 uh, during the time of redlining. And she comes to our organization probably a few weeks back, nine days after her 91st birthday. And she's taken a tour at a museum that we started, we'll probably talk about later, but she stands in the museum and she says, when I was your age or a little younger, I couldn't even visit a museum. Oh, my God. And she says, there's a well-known story, 
it was riches, but it turned into Macy's and it was in the heart of the city. She says, I couldn't even work in that department store. There were certain parts of town that I could not, you know, go in and like hearing those stories in real time. I mean, your -hmm. grandparents and your family members become like living historical epistles, right? That's exactly right. And I'm still like gleaning information from like how, uh, you know, the Jim Crow era and racism and all of those things impacted them and shaped like the professions they chose, you know, what parts of town they decided to live in, mm-hmm. how they chose to parent their children, uh, which are my parents and, you know, and how that is like being passed down through generation and generation. And then that shows up and, you know, always keep your hands out of your pocket when you enter into a store. You know, if you don't have money, don't go into a store. If you're driving, yeah. keep your hands like 10 and 2. Don't wear baggy clothes. You know, all of the talk things to kind of mitigate wow. what they experienced in real time uh, for young Black children. And all passed down because of love. Yes. All of those because talks, of love. they happen because you are loved by them. And, and they so want love, and they want you to be safe. Right. Love drives them to try to help you to be safe throughout your life. So can I ask you why 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 did you write All God's Children right now? Yeah. I was really wrestling um with a number of things. Firstly, I was and still am waking up to the reality that there's so much history that has been erased, hidden. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, what moves a Carter G. Woodson to create Negro History Week that later becomes Black History Month, right? Mm. Um, he says mm. that, you know, a people that have been oppressed can't even draw inspiration if they don't have access to that history, right? Oof. And so I think a part of me writing this is reconnecting even deeper on a deeper level uh, mm-hmm. things that have historically shaped black people and mm-hmm. it's still having an impact in the way that I show up in the world. Like I want to connect to a Fannie Lou Hamer or Ella Baker or, you know, some of the women who led uh, during the Montgomery bus boycott. Like I, I want to connect with that type of strength from black yeah. women, uh, from our black heritage that speaks to the way in which I show up in strength uh, to mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, Black people, I was uh, in this setting last night talking about the book, and I I asked people who were majority Black and Brown in the audience, I was like, how many of you have ever walked into a room, and the room was full of white people, and um, you had to deal with uh, these embedded ideas of who you are and the type of work that you bring to the table? I've had to navigate many uh, white spaces and I've encountered all types of, uh, you know, racially motivated, abusive uh, behaviors, uh, microaggressions, uh, the implicit bias, um, you know, Mm -hmm. all of the things. And, you know, as a black person or a person of color, you're always grappling with, you know, uh, this, this, you know, wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard, wanting to you know, really not be defined by, yeah, not be defined by how people have ignorantly labeled you or tried to define you. And so I'm grappling Mm. with that. I'm grappling with my own history. 
But I really do have a heart, uh, Lisa, for peacemaking. You know, mm -hmm. what does it look mm -hmm. like to do as uh, Reverend Barber is talking about, have this fusion movement, right? Yeah. Have this, yes. have this coming together where we stand in solidarity against anything that seeks to disrupt uh, God's love and God's people and God's shalom on earth. Hmm. So what did you see for the first time while you were writing this book? What, what did, what did the process of writing illuminate? That I had been silenced. Ooh, um, now wait, now wait, we just got to sit on that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Because you didn't say I've been silent. You said I've been silenced. So yeah. that is someone has taken action against your voice and shut it down. So explain that. Yeah. You ever, uh, we've seen many different types of racial unrest, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. I mean, uh, we all just, yes. yeah, like all the, the things, right? The river of hashtags hashtag. is what yeah, I call it. The river them. of hashtags. Mm -hmm. What happens to a black man or black woman or black person when they uh, uh, are murdered at the hand of violence. They die two deaths, right? They have two deaths. One, uh, they have a physical death uh, and what we see that causes racial trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And then they have another death and the, the second death is character assassination. Ooh, yes. It's you know, uh, in people will start to case, in, in every, in every single case, right? Wow. And so, mm. black people, we know the injustice that ha we have been faced with and what we we've had to suffer through. And when we start to voice, you know, and speak out, right? Uh, the begin right. of beginning of repair is truth telling, right? When we That's begin right. to speak out and voice. You know what happens? People want to edit you. And the oh. editing is a part of the silencing. That's you right. Yeah. Yes. Who edited you? Uh, just navigating uh, white spaces. Um, you know, I grew up historically black church, uh, began to walk across lines and uh, found myself in predominantly white space, spaces, giving a lot of mm -hmm. talks, whether it's preaching or DEI talks or whatever. And mm -hmm. the moment you start talking about how the collective trauma, the racial trauma, the things that have caused harm uh, to black people is the moment that people start to question, not only you, they question your voice, and they try to silence or edit the truth that you're telling. Mm. And I, you know, I often say that if, you know, people only won't have truth, it's still a whole lie. And, you know, mm. I've, I've been in many spaces where people only wanted have truths to appease and to make themselves feel comfortable with dealing with the realities of how history is still impacting us in the present moment. I love that. And I mean, it, I love it because it's really true. And I want to just I want to just say, amen. I have been there. And I also want to give an example of how that happens. Right. Because I think that some of our listeners might be going, but how? How does that happen? Like if you're giving a speech, if you're if you're if you're giving a talk 
and you tell the truth in that talk. Um, how do you get silenced in the middle of telling your talk? I mean, one way is that you start seeing people check out. I mean, I've literally had people get up and walk out. Like yep. I literally had yep. recently, I spoke at, um, oh, it was, it was actually um, a significant event that was at Penn University. And mm. it was, um, it was, put on by um, Forum Philly, which is an amazing organization here in Philadelphia. And it involved the Boy Scouts and it involved the blah, blah, blah. It was a big deal, right? And so really one of the only white people in the whole room for Juneteenth, no less, right? It was a Juneteenth oh, thing, oh. right? So one of the only white people in the whole room was a mother of a white child who was in the Boy Scouts. And as I got up to speak on slavery and Texas, she literally grabbed mm. her little white son and they they rushed out in the middle aisle. Now, who knows? Maybe they were late for something and they thought it was going to be over. I doubt it. But in any case, that's the kind of thing that I've experienced. Also, um, just explicitly, like when I was, and tell me if you, if you experienced this, explicitly when I was um, coming up as a, quote, racial reconciliation, um, you know, um, a uh, person like leader, um, I was counseled by white men in particular. This is how you talk about this. You can't say things through the front door. You have to go through the back door. You have to give scripture first and then give the value, but never really name what you're talking about. Just give them mm. the thing that's going to lead them to do what you want them to do, right? Be kind to people. So talk about kindness. Don't talk about race. Talk about um, generosity. Don't talk about justice. Right. So, yeah. Or if you're going to talk about justice, talk about generous. I mean, general, uh, ju just just generosity is that's a isn't that a title of a book? So how have you experienced it? In, in, in similar ways, uh, mm -hmm. it's the scripting. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, most times I think Dr. Bernice King says whenever someone invites you to a table, uh, they still have the power of that table. Right. Uh, being able to dictate what conversations are had, what scriptures are chosen, you know, mm -hmm. the talking points, etc. And so, I mean, that's that within itself is a, a form of silencing when you invite a black or brown person to a conversation about reconciliation and then you dictate what they get a chance to talk about as if forgive you can forgive your way out of abuse. You can forgive your way out of injustice. And that just doesn't happen. And I think one of the things too, is like this, um, this, um, this com like conflating these ideas, uh, trying to conflate this idea of racial reconciliation with, uh, racial justice, which are two distinct, uh, conversations. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I've been to tables or invited to spaces where, uh, they wanted to talk about racial justice under the umbrella of racial reconciliation. And, uh, you know, racial reconciliation for, you know, majority culture churches is all about forgiveness, right? Uh, right. You know, that it's, is so it's, true. It's very, you totally Yeah, it's all about like this individualist, like just kind of like, you know, kumbaya moment, but it right. misses. Well, let, me, let me just say real quick. It is about, um, it is about recognizing and repenting for individual um, prejudice. Yes, yes, yes. 
And that's exactly it. Which yeah. I don't have any problems with that. It's like, okay, the we problem, can go there, but that's not the yeah, whole deal at all. <laughs> yeah, that's not the whole deal, right? Um, my my problems come with when you want to talk about the actual realities of what upholds injustice. Mm-hmm. You know, the residue that we're still faced with and the truth-telling of that. That's when, you know, I've had a time when I was giving a talk and my microphone was shut off. Wow. Yeah, my microphone was shut off because I said something that was outside of the script that was given, you know? And then, you know, the other thing, too, is like this whole uh, not only policing dialogue and rhetoric, but the policing of experience, right? Oh, my gosh. Yes. You know, trying to dictate to someone else um, the experience, the experience that they're having in their body, in their mind, you know, the trauma that we carry when we experience the, the, the racialized trauma, whether from a social media image or it doesn't even have to be a family member. We are connected through the, the, the lineage of just, you know, our families and our history and our heritage and the suffering. Right. And right. so we feel that. I remember times when I was asked, I was on staff at a a predominantly white church. I was asked to give a talk about racial reconciliation when someone's life was taken, a black body was taken, murdered, and nobody even checked on my soul. (laughs) Uh, Nobody asked me, what what are you feeling on the inside? Right. Mm. It was just a bunch of scriptures being shoved at me about, Mm. you know, things that I needed to talk about. And, you know, that is a a form of silencing. Oh, hell no, is what I say to that. Yeah. I mean, really, that's. You don't get a chance to talk about how you're feeling. Right. More than that. Yes. You don't get the chance to talk about how you're feeling, but, but never, like, never under any circumstances, under any circumstances, should people of European descent um, yes. be assuming the role of the shaper of the conversation on race? It yes. just is inappropriate. Yes. Yeah. It's inappropriate and um, it's wow. harmful. It's harmful. And it's harmful. So to your, you know, to your question, writing this book was cathartic for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because most black people don't get a chance to share their experiences that they have in white spaces. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So Terrence, you were you were saying that people don't normally get we don't normally get a chance to tell our stories. You are exactly right. And you know, we love history. You love history, I love history. And part of your journey, especially for this book, has been, you know, the process of going back into your own history. I, I want to ask you just, you know, especially given the reality that we have states, like several states now that are outlawing the teaching of history if the word race is mentioned, right? Let alone the topic. Um, Why do you believe history is important right now? 
Yeah. And actually, let I mean, me, let me, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that as well or, or add something to that framing because that framing really centers the struggle to have white people learn history. But quite honestly, we need the history as well. And, you know, just like you say in your book, um, history is not always welcome. We don't always want to go back and see. And I know that even within young, like, especially within younger um, generations right now, they just are kind of done with the whole, I don't want to know about no slaves anymore. I want to know about how we get free. Like, I want to, so they don't really necessarily, they're not attracted to that story. So why is it important for all of us to dig deep into the past in order to move forward? Yeah, I, for, I forget the scholar who said it, but um, it was basically alluding to the fact that if you don't know your history, you really don't know yourself. Mm. Um, yeah, it's true. When I think about the the book banning, you know, state of Texas, Missouri, Florida, I mean, it's happening all around the the country. Mm -hmm. um, this this sort of like erasure upholds ignorance. Um, Dr. Cosby from Simmons College, he says it's two forms of ignorance. You got woeful ignorance and you have willful ignorance. Ooh, that's good. Woeful is more of like, oh, I, I've never encountered that before. I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. This is my first time encountering that. And I, I was just unknowing. But this mm -hmm. sort of willful ignorance is knowing the truth, but still in your stubbornness, you deny it. This is yeah. what we saw. This is what we saw, you know, during or after Reconstruction, you know, 1890 to 1940s, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Dr. LeGarrette King, he writes this beautiful research called When Lions Write History. Mm. He's basically looking at the removal of black history from textbooks through the K through 12 experience. And he's examining these textbooks that were written during this time, looking at uh, most of the storytellers are white historians, white right. educators who use history as a way to explore this social framing of how black people were viewed. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, be, being able to write history in a way that socially frames an entire population of people as criminal, as less than as barbarians, as destitute of intelligence, as all of these things have had a tremendous impact. Then we're not even talking about uh, de jure laws like redlining that was instituted by policy that upholds these social constructions of what it means to be black or brown and experiencing poverty that was socially constructed in this country, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and even after its abolishment, uh, what Dr. King is arguing is that it became de facto. It was removed from law, but it was, wasn't removed from the heart. That's right. <laughs> and and so, it also, honestly, it also wasn't re removed from our economic systems, the way things work from the, economically. Exactly. Exactly. And so understanding history firstly gives us an awareness of, for Black people, who we are, because I'm grappling with all of these things, you know, you know, the strength, the legacy, uh, not just being defined by enslavement, but we were a people, you know, that predates enslavement, right? Hello, uh, yes. You know, trying to understand 
you know, the long history of our people and how we have emerged and how we've overcame and how we've struggled and how we've contributed to the world. There's no place on this earth that you can touch on foot that black people haven't contributed to in some shape, form or fashion. Right. And so like it, I get a chance to find strength in that by wrestling with that history, understanding Mm -hmm. that history. But I also get a chance uh, to see how the knowing of history in our present moment helps us to make better decisions in the present moment. Mm. So, you know, in his foreword, Daniel Hill describes this book as a resource. He says, uh, quote, for the wilderness season we find ourselves in. So it's a resource for the wilderness um, and he, we are in the wilderness. We are. Can you kind of go like unpack that? What is our wilderness? And also, you know, unpack how this is a resource. Yeah. I think I was, I was talking to, um, I was talking to this group yesterday and a question came up similar because I was talking about the ignorance. I told the story of my daughter. My daughter was in the eighth grade uh, when I uh, she sent me this random text. She had worn an African headscarf to school, oh. and she was proud because at this time she was 13, and she's really trying to understand her racial identity as a black uh, young lady, a black woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we kind of celebrate that, right? And yeah. so she says, Dad, and normally when she texts me, Dad, I know that she's going to ask me a question (laughs) to get something or she wants to make a statement. But in this case, she was making a statement. She Mm -hmm. says, I was stopped by a white principal and she told me to take off my my hat. And she says, I don't have on a hat. And then she says she started to badger me and say, say, um, like only Muslims wear those types of things. I stopped my meeting, Lisa. Oh my God. I got in my car. I went up to the school. I dem- I demanded to speak to the, the principal. We oh get my into God. The comfort- we get into the conference room and um, I ask her, I say, do you know where head scarves and head wraps come from? And she says, no. I said, those were one of the only pieces of garments that made it through the middle passage. And when Africans actually arrived to the Americas, those who were enslaving Africans actually use headscarves to identify women as property. And here in recent years, uh, Black women have reclaimed uh, their naturalness, saying, I'm not going to be defined by, you know, a, a, a space that dictates how I wear my crown, right? Mm-hmm. And we're teaching our daughter this. And she calls my daughter into the office. She says, I was totally oblivious to this. I was unaware and I want to apologize. That affirmed my daughter in that moment. And so when I talk about a resource, I'm talking about things uh, that one helps people to grapple with these questions. Like what talk were you given? I right. I, I display my talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, either you were verbally taught these things. I'm talking to uh, people who may be uh, European descent Mm-hmm. Uh, or you caught those things. There's a nonverbal talking that happened, right? You saw how, you know, a grandmother or a grandfather or an uncle or a cousin treated someone uh, who was black or brown. Um, but two, I'm exposing these different things 
uh, to help people grapple with some of their embedded ideology that have been passed down through generation to generation. And then towards the end of each chapter, I'm giving like, like very basic and practical things that people can do like in real time uh, to start to build solidarity with uh, their neighbor. So tell us how to confront history we don't want to know. How do we do it? Like, what's the how? That we don't want to know? That we don't want to know. I think we need to uh, just firstly deal with that Mm -hmm. uh, and ask, why don't we want to know this? Mm-hmm. You know, That's there good. there has there has to be some inner work that needs to be done, and I mean, you really have to question and ask yourself what is keeping you from wanting to know history, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bird called the Sankofa bird. Yeah. Uh, it's it's from Ghana, you know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the picture of this bird is the body is facing forward, but the head is turned backwards, mm-hmm. and it's this it it depicts this idea that. Uh, although we're forever moving forward, we can't move forward unless we look back. Mm-hmm. That informs our present moment. That infor- informs how we move forward. Mm-hmm. And if you are wanting to grow uh, relationally uh, in just like your solidarity work, uh, being in solidarity with others, uh, if you're wanting to grow in you know, just as a person and how you embody empathy and compassion and fill in those narrative gaps that Lisa talks about, then you've got to really do that work and ask yourself, why don't I want to know this? Mm. Why why do I need to hide this? Why, why am I keeping myself from going through uh, this type of understanding of knowing uh, that history? Mm. So tell us how to unpack our hidden biases. Yeah. These are chapters in the book, by the way, everybody. <laughs> yeah, when I think about bias, <clears throat> um, there's so many aspects of bias, whether it's implicit uh, affinity bias, uh, confirmation bias, right, where you want to only uh, look at information that is of your liking, uh, you know, cherry picking information to only, you know, grapple with things that you're you, you, you know, you're kind of aligned with your core values and your beliefs. I think one of the ways in which we really grapple with the embedded biases um, is to ask ourselves questions. Why do I believe this? Where did I get this information from? You know, what is kind of upheld this type of belief system in, in my, in my, in my view, in my framework, in my heart. Um, And I think we also need to hold, you know, those answers to those questions and seek out the truth to see if what we are actually believing is the truth or not. And I don't I don't think people have allowed themselves that type of space to kind of have that introspection. I think another wow. thing. Wait, wait, wait. Before you move on, let me just say let me sit there for a second, because I think what you're saying is actually pretty profound, because what you're mm. saying is that in order for us to unpack our hidden biases, we actually have to enter into a transition space. Yes. A space that is between understandings. So yes. we have to become comfortable not knowing. You yes. Know? It's the, yes. I mean, I've, I mean, I'd say I've been challenged by that, uh, by uh, to do that in the midst of 
my own PhD study, right? So PhD is all about research and you can't, you can't call yourself doing research if you already know the answer. You yes. actually have to have an actual question. So yes. unpacking hidden biases, maybe, maybe does it look like searching for the actual question you have? Mm. Hello. That, <laughs> hello. <laughs> that, that, all that, that preaching. Yeah. I, I remember um, when I was working on my doctoral work, I had to take a class. It was a foundational class called Engaging Differences. Engaging differences. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So like I go through the class, had to write a lot of papers and every single paper had to be on something that wasn't, uh, you know, familiar to myself. Mm. I had to choose a people group, uh, indigenous folks. I need, I had to learn history. I needed to look up land, uh, that w we were on, you know, which was yeah. stolen and taken. I had to like ask myself, uh, you know, questions about why did I believe some of the things? And that caused me to challenge some of the embedded ideas that I had believed. I had yeah. to uh, seek out people who were actually indigenous um, and ask them questions without editing, without trying to give a response, without trying to answer something that is true to their existential experience, right? And so, like, engaging differences within itself is being able to be with someone in their world without you inserting your own. Oh, that's and I so think, good. I think without, that editing. Is, uh, without editing. Without editing. Without editing. Yeah. Which is transformational, right? Yeah. Because you yes. walk away and you are challenged to think deeply about how you arrived at some of your answers. Yeah, and honestly, aren't we changed through that process? We are literally, we yes. literally are changed because we have allowed ourselves to be inside of the transition space. And yes. transition space is, is inherently not the space we started in, right? It's not the, the knowing space. And mm. I think honestly, like from that process, I have, and I am, I mean, it's, a, it's ongoing, right? It's, it is a process of, growing humility there's mm. humility is really at the at the core of that um the humility of of for me in the christian tradition philippians too right where it says jesus yeah. didn't come seeking the position of god even though he was god instead he lowered himself to that of a human being um and what does it look like for us to be human it means not being god it means we don't know everything Right? right? It means we don't have all the answers. So when you start to approach the other or differences with, with, with the acknowledgement that we don't, you don't, I don't have the answers, all of a sudden it's like there's an opening. Isn't there? There's kind of an opening yeah. in our souls. And I, th I think too, there's been a, a negative connotation as it relates to the transitional space. Mm. Um, because mm. yeah, talk more about transitional that. transitional spaces is often related to discomfort. Yes, in, instead of adventure, mm -hmm. I see the transitional space as you know newfound adventure, ways to explore, to discover things that I had not previously known, mm -hmm. which in turns creates the humility and sets me up to grow. 
And why do I want to grow? Because I want to be a better servant to God. I want to be a better servant to my family. I want to be a better servant to those who are neighbor. And neighbor is just not a geographical statement. It's a moral statement. Neighbor is who you come in contact with. It's whoever you, you know, cross paths with. And so I want to be the best version that I'm able to be to be a a better servant. And Mm -hmm. as long as I'm viewing that as an exploratory journey, then I remain humble to learn, to grow and to put my, my heart in a posture of like, you know, what else, what else can I learn? What else can I unpack? What else can I unload? You know, and I think it's, um, you know, it's just a journey that you, you grow to, uh, love, you know, it's not something that, you know, initially you just kind of like, or, you know, have a lot of passion about it. You grow to love it because you understand that as you're encountering new knowledge and new, um, responsibilities, um, that it's creating more, uh, space for you to serve humanity. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So, speaking of encountering your neighbor, can you tell us about the homeless man named Leonard? Yeah. Who you met and changed your life? Yeah, I was... I was starting to do work early, early on in, you know, the beginning stages of our organization. Uh, we didn't have a, a building or budget or any of that stuff. It was just all about proximity and presence and wanting to be in relationships uh, with, uh, you know, people who are also a part of the Bluff community. And I'll never forget, I was at a gas station and I ran into Leonard he was literally looking for his meal in a garbage can and people were pumping gas and going about their day. Nobody took time to even acknowledge his existence. And I think, you know, one of the greatest threats to belonging is distance. Right. Mm. Um, so I approached Leonard and I asked him a question mm. that uh, I'm pretty sure he wasn't expecting. I said, you know, hey, I introduced myself. We started to talk. He told me that he lost his wife, um, that he became depressed and he couldn't no longer function on his job. And oh um, he, he started to lose things. And I asked him, literally, if you had one wish, what would that wish be? He said, uh, I would want to be made over. <laughs> and Wow. I mean, the first time I heard that, I was kind of like, what? Yeah, he he said I wanted to be made over. And it was like, it wasn't the type of makeover. Like, I wish I could go back to the beginning and start everything over again. Yeah, yeah. He was talking about trash hanging from his beard and his clothes. He had been wearing the same thing for three weeks, the same clothes. And it was, he he was basically saying, like, I just want the decency of being able to be made clean to have access Mm -hmm. to sanitation and water and things. And I remember uh, telling his story and we had this church. I never, 
I didn't know anybody from this church reach out to us and wanted to donate uh, this this bus. And in the spirit of Leonard, we turned it into like one of the first mobile makeover units in the city of Atlanta. It was a mobile barbershop, mobile shower and clothing closet. And um, we were able to make Leonard over, but greater than that, connect him to housing. And I think his story is an example of many different stories because it took time to be in his presence to understand how he arrived at that plight, not to make generalizations, Mm -hmm. but to really be present with him in that moment and humble myself to Mm -hmm. learn from a a man who had the courage to dig in a dumpster. Wow. Wow. Well, when you put it that way, yeah. How do you recommend we engage our communities? Like, where do we begin? Because you obviously have some skill at this, right? Like you're at the gas station and you see Leonard. And I actually think most people don't ignore Leonard because of any evil intent. I think most people ignore Leonard because they don't know how to engage him in a way that's one, safe for them. And number two, that that doesn't shame him um, or cause him to feel ashamed. So how do we, and it's not just how do we engage the homeless, but how do we engage our communities? Like, where do we begin? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So earlier today, I was at uh, the King Center and a lady asked uh, a similar question, but she also had another question. She says, you know, what do I do with the emotions that I have towards people who are unhoused when I get up out of my bed and I go to work every day? Mm. And I started to uh, respond in a way that really broke down the uh, constructions of poverty, right? Uh, Teresa Gowan says this, sin talk, sick talk, or system talk. Uh, These are the types of narratives that we play in our mind as it relates to why we think people are unhoused. It's basically, uh, I was responding to her, uh, just kind of helping her to reduce the fear of Mm. those who are unhoused. I think Mm -hmm. a large part of one of the reasons why we don't uh, practice proximity and presence is because it's connected to a narrative, you know, what we believe about a community, what we believe about people who are poor, what we believe about uh, those who are unhoused. So true. And, uh, wow. you know, this criminal view of homelessness or uh, persons who are impoverished really mm-hmm. started to develop around, you know, social and political rhetoric. And so we really have to do work to understand, you know, are these persons that I really should fear? Um, there's a study that came out of John Hopkins hospital that said majority of the people who commit the most crimes aren't people who are unhoused. They're actually people with housing. Wow. You know, Wow. Um, wow. I yep. think we have to do that, that narrative justice work that you so eloquently mm-hmm. talk about is, mm-hmm. you know, George Lakoff argues that reframing is a part of social change reframing mm-hmm. the way that we see our neighbors. And I'm not telling um, people just to, to jump out there. You could have uh, wise courage, right? Yeah. Wise courage. 
you don't have to just always talk to somebody, you know, while you're out on the streets, you can mm -hmm. actually create the type of margin in your life where you partner with organizations who are already doing this work. Um, wow. You could look at, you could look at your plate uh, because most people talk about wanting to create, you know, rhythms in their life where they're actually serving, but they're just not available. So it's not a willingness issue. It's an availability issue. Mm -hmm. Then I would argue, can you create that type of margin where you connect with organizations on the ground, where you start to take steps to do this type of work, to be proximate, to find ways uh, to serve and stand in solidarity with those uh, who may be unhoused or vulnerable. And That's then really uh, la lastly, Lisa, I would, I would say even if you can't find ways to be a geographically uh, proximate, you can be cognitively proximate. Mm. Um, you can start to research and understand ways in which systems are impacting, impacting people uh, namely those who are unhoused or marginalized or impoverished. And, you know, you may not think that cognitive uh, proximity is important, but it is because it orients your heart in a way to be, as Lisa just said, uh, humble. Hmm. I love how you're quoting me back to me. That's <laughs> thank you for the honor, brother. I appreciate it. But it's really it is really true, isn't it, though? Like proximity matters. And engaging our communities really is about shrinking the proximity gap, right? Yes. Um, my friend uh, Michelle Warren wrote a book about that. Um, uh, you know, and I, I think that there's um, when we, I think right now, in a lot of ways, our future depends on our ability to do exactly what you're talking about, which is one of the reasons I wanted to lift up this book so much. Um, we are in an ever-widening proximity gap between yes. all of us. I mean, we are, I mean, I think the pandemic really kind of put this all on steroids, but literally mm -hmm. the distance between us has widened and widened and widened. And, and now it's not even just physically, it's actually ideologically, it's how we think. It's, it's the news, like we're not even watching the same news, literally not the same stories at all. Um, and right. even when we, when we are, they're coming from very different perspectives. Um, and I think that there's our future, the future of our nation, um, the future of the church will absolutely depend on our ability to connect, to reconnect to each other. And so I really love, mm. I love the ways that you're really calling us to shrink that proximity gap to, to if not physically, then... Um, then mentally, then do the reading, do the research, do the do the documentary watching, right? And then yes. I love what you just said. Also, show up, like show yes. up, go to yeah. the organization that is actually working on that issue or with these people in your area. I talk about that in the very good gospel in the chapter on yes. race. You know, it is just one of those things you got to do. You can't you can't say you're you're doing anything if you haven't done that. So yes, it's really, really good. Yeah. It's it's so um, wow the proximity gap. I mean, mm -hmm. and what does the proximity gap do? It creates apathy. Yes, you know where yes. people are indifferent towards the the sufferings of others. It uh, creates 
you know, walls, right? Yes. Uh, Jesus wasn't about walls. He was about longer tables, right? That's exactly Um, right. Wow. It creates Mm -hmm. fear. It creates distance. It threatens this idea of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think as you stated uh, so eloquently, we're being called to lamentation. Mm-hmm. Being able I didn't to, say that. That was you. <laughs> yeah, I, it's I, good. I, it's good. Well, I, I mean, that's what I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm sensing mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we should be weeping, not in isolation, but with each other. Yes. You know yes. about the, that's how we the, the, need the, to be reconnecting. Yeah, yeah. is is it's it's through the cries and the you know you know lamentation is about wrestling with doubt and fear and suffering and crying out and injustice and all of the things that uh, plague society and uh, the relationships and the peace. It disrupts the peacemaking that we are wanting to see. We need to cry out because through lamination, lamentation comes uh, connection and community. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about, uh, you know, the, the type of lament that happened where people would gather to lament together in the scriptures. Um, mm-hmm. And then we need this, this robust, you know, listening and learning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I oftentimes say that you can't listen or learn to somebody you've never been proximate to. Hello. And, and not just listening or trying to make someone teach you, but really having authentic relationships in a way where you are creating healthy spaces where you can learn from other people and listen to other people without censorship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that leads to this immersiveness, right? We talk about scripture. <laughs> Jesus immersed himself. Uh, Howard Thurman says mm-hmm. that he was the one that was immersed in the contact, but he, he also had his back against the wall. Yes. Right. Yes. He was standing in solidarity with those who were suffering. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this, but like, there's this quote, I forget the author's name, but it says, if you think you're an ally or someone who is standing in solidarity with other people, but you haven't been hit by the stones that were thrown at them, mm-hmm. then you're not standing close enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a powerful analogy of like, we need to be close, as Hearing Nowen says, with compassion, to weep with those who are weeping, to suffer with those who are suffering, to mourn with those who are mourned. And that starts to build the, the repair that we desire. And from there emerges, you know, the compassion and the resistance and, um, you know, the ways in which we organize to stand against some of the ills that are plaguing people. That's deep. I mean, is that a little bit of what you mean by the call to sit at another's table, at someone else's table? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about that earlier. Mm -hmm. I've been invited to many tables. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there was power at that table that dictated the dialogue. Um... To sit at someone else's table means that uh, if you're a person of European descent, you you decenter yourself in a way. Yes. Where you're able to oh. humble yourself to learn in in someone else's context. 
That's good. Um, and then get hit by whatever's coming their way too. And right? you get hit by what it, whatever's coming their way. Oh, that's good. All right. So I have. Can I ask you one question before? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> why, okay, yeah. Why don't. What What do you think keeps people from sitting at the table of another? Oh, that's a great question. What do I think keeps people from sitting at the table of another? Fear. I do think it's fear. I think it's fear of the unknown. It's fear of loss of control. And especially people of European descent in Western cultures, control is probably one of the highest values of all. The ability to control the self and control one's environment and control the other. And you see, you know, self-discipline is a high, high value. Um, to control the environment. I mean, we're doing everything. We're even cloning. Like, you know what I mean? We're actually literally creating or trying to be God, trying to create. And I mean this in the Western Western culture in particular, trying to create life that there's no greater um, attempt to control the environment than to do that. Right. Um, and then, and, and also, I mean, I was just watching a news report literally just before we got on about climate change and how the reality is, is that there, we've been, people, science has been sounding the alarm on climate change since the 1950s. And in 1978, um, President Carter came out. I remember this. I was a little kid when he came out and said, look, if we don't change um, our carbon emissions, this is what's going to happen. And what he said was going to happen is what is happening right now. And yet for now 50 something years going on 60 years we in the west have um, refused to give up control of our present and our future by um, refusing to to let go of what we know coal oil um, natural gas in favor of what we don't know as well and we don't know how the economy will work under wind or algae or you know any of the other renewable sources that we have sun right we didn't know and also there's a need to shift whole economies in that way so you literally would be entering an entire um well multiple economies and the world economy we have to do this now otherwise we will be extinct extinct in like 30 years um but you have to shift the world economy into something we've never seen before. And so rather than do that, rather than give up control, what did we do in the West? We held on to control. And now nature, Mother Nature is like, well, you chose to have control then. That means I have control now. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and now somebody gets a third degree burn when they sit down on the pavement. Right yeah. now. Um, you, we literally are in danger of not having crops in the next year because California has burned so much that our main source of crops in the United States of America will not have crops. They won't have mm. crops. <laughs> um, and, and that's because of choices that we made to maintain control, right? So I think it's fear. Um, fear of the unknown, fear of losing control. But what, what, you know, the ironic thing about that is that it's the counterintuitive 
It's the counterintuitive wisdom that says growth, blessing right. requires letting go of control. Um, let it go, let it flow, let go, let God. All of those those like maxims that we that we have that actually are they are on point. There are things we haven't done, and and are and, and what's happening now is right like after 2020 and the uprising there and um, the the sense of whoa we don't we we need to change in order to have a viable America racially, and then white mm -hmm. people a lot like in droves let go of control. And then found themselves out floating on a sea and said, this can't be right. And so what they do now they're clamping down and grabbing control again. And not just, not just socially. Now we're talking about legal control. We're talking about political control in order to take us back to that moment when they felt in control, because now they're afraid of this world that they've never known a world where they are a minority. So, boy, you know, you asked me that question. I did not have an answer, but in the speaking of it, I think that's my answer. Wow. Can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. <laughs> what does, for you, what does the coming of the kingdom of God look like? The coming of the kingdom of God. It's it's a space when uh, people who are unhoused aren't turned away from public restrooms. Mm -hmm. It's a space where kids mm -hmm. aren't the fastest growing population of people experiencing homelessness. It's a place where, you know, families don't have to stay in cars because they can no longer afford to stay in the neighborhood that's being gentrified. It's wow. a place where we care about climate change. It's a place where we call and hold people accountable who are still um, advocating for gun violence or the ownership of assault rifles. Mm. It's a place where, you know, our neighbors uh, no matter how they identify or, um, you know, what ethnic background they emerge from, is mm -hmm. it included? It's, it's a place mm -hmm. where peace, uh, is exalted above war, uh, where love is exalted above division. It's a place where mm -hmm. poverty is an issue that we addressed where, um, uh, fusion and togetherness and solidarity and all of the things that uh, makes us whole and united is at the center. Um, mm -hmm. It's a space where Black people aren't edited, where the narrative gap, there is no narrative gap, right? where it's not about narrative justice anymore. Um, it's a space mm -hmm. where there's, you know, flourishing and peace. So I think that's what we are all hoping in some way. Amen. Amen. And amen.
The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia and wherever our guests are laying their heads that night. This episode was engineered and edited and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. And Freedom Road Podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates, which are on Substack. You can find us on Substack at Freedom Road, at Freedom Road, actually, on Substack. And we promise that we will not flood your inbox. I think we, we send out something like once every two weeks or so. We invite you to listen again and join the conversation on Freedom Road. And if you are a Patreon patron or a Substack subscriber, paid subscriber, you get a little treat. You're going to get a behind the scenes conversation with Terrence Lester, Dr. Terrence Lester. Thank you very much. <laughs>